Jonah. Uh, it's at the very tail end of chapter 3 and through chapter 4. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to just pray really quick. I wouldn't mind some help, so we're going to ask for it. Dear God, I pray uh, even now, Lord, it is good to know your word does not uh, just fall dead. So I pray this morning, in spite of uh, a lot of opportunities, a lot of different reasons, whether it's things going on in our hearts, recent news, um, tragedies, celebrations, distractions, noise, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that your word would just pierce through all of those things and you would address our need. So Holy Spirit, we ask you uh, to please do this. And we pray these things all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to tell you a story. It's a, it's a sensitive story, uh, but it's one that I think, I think it's probably not unique to me. Last February marked a significant milestone in my life. About eight years ago, uh, like many of you probably, as you may recall, there were numerous reports of 21 men in orange jumpsuits standing on the Mediterranean beach shoulder to shoulder. Days before these men had been captured by a radical group known as the Islamic State, and kneeling there in the sand... In their own language, as they cried out to our Lord, they were beheaded for their faith in Christ. I will never forget that moment. Uh, I remember exactly where I was. There's a lot of pinnacle, like important parts of your life where you can know exactly where you were. And for me, this is one of them. I remember being in, in my bedroom, and I remember reading about this and it, 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 just, it just moved me. You see, ISIS was becoming the usual buzz on the news outlets at this time, but this was different. The execution of these men hit a nerve with me that I didn't necessarily know that I had. It didn't make me nervous to think about what could happen to me. It didn't make me angry that the media was putting their death all over the screen. But while all those things were true, I was in a different kind of place. There was something beyond fear and anger that was overwhelming me. And I didn't realize it yet, but I was actually stuck. I was stuck and I couldn't move. I got down on my knees and I prayed, not what I should have prayed, not what you would think I should pray, not what the Bible tells us we should pray. I prayed something different. I prayed that God would pour his wrath on these guys. I was reminded of the martyrs that we read about in Revelation, and I just I felt like this is, this is evil. This is absolutely atrocious. This is, like, is going to shipwreck many families' faith in that region. Because these guys, all through the, the sounds of the blades and the murmuring of these men as they made threats and murderous threats and, and, and spoke terrible things, all of that going on to them in the back as they're blindfolded and all they're doing is they're calling out Jesus. You see, 
I was stuck. Have you ever been so disgusted with someone in their injustice, so longing for justice, that it, would actually, it actually feels like it would kill you to see them receive mercy or be transformed? In a world like ours, I imagine it's not really difficult to start to think of those kinds of things, even if they're not as extreme as these men uh, in, in the Mediterranean. Maybe it's an estranged relationship that you have that you feel this way. Maybe it's some oppressor that you've had to deal with in your life. Maybe it's those who you know oppose all that's right. Maybe it's those who simply just don't see things the way that you do. This could be a coworker. This could be a neighbor. This could be someone you, you coached with or you played sports with. This could be anybody. But do you see someone in your life that exposes the fact that it feels like it would kill you to see them receive mercy. And what do we do with this? What do you do with this? How do we, as the people of God, move beyond our prejudice, whether it's justified or not? How do we move past that and get unstuck when the gospel wants to blow past all of our preferences and prejudices? How do we get unstuck when the gospel reaches further than our love for others? This morning, we're going to look at somebody, a man, who was stuck like some of us are this morning. Like I, like I am. He was not unique for feeling this way. In fact, it was probably considered pretty normal and expected for him to feel the way that he did. Except this guy's different. He's, he's not normal because he's, he is given the task of presenting that very mercy and call of transformation to the very people that he hated. He was so disgusted with them. But in his own mind, it would be an actual tragedy for God to do anything but destroy him. Each one of them in his mind had it coming, and in his stuck mind, it would kill him to see God spare these people. Now, in the book of Jonah, if you, if you know Jonah or you're familiar with it, it's a pretty short book, uh, and it can be often neglected outside of like children's ministry, you know, the flannel graph and all that jazz, or Veggie Tales. I'm sure most of us, like me, that's where you got your like first thorough exposure to Jonah. Uh, so if you're unfamiliar, I'm going to try to do my best to help us revisit some of the details, at least outside of the whole big fish thing. Uh, that, that is there, but we probably all know this. Uh, the Bible tells us Jonah is a real prophet. Um, it, it, he spoke about, uh, he, he was said to have lived during the, king, uh, uh, the reign of King Jeroboam. So you can see that in 2 Kings 14.25. And we're told that God calls him to go and to preach to the people of Nineveh because of their evil. Now, for us, this is probably not too big of a deal, but in his world, this was absolutely unthinkable. It, it was crazy. It, it was loony. You see, because Jonah's a Jew, and he lived in the promised man, land among the promised people. But in his world, the Ninevites, like the, the people of Assyria, are wicked, and they are not in the club. They're not in the group or part of the people. 
His people were God's people. And they had a covenant with God that made them unique among all the world. As a people and as a nation, they would be the people that represent the one true God. And their home, where they lived, was the place where the one true God dwelt. In their mind, the world consisted of people... Uh, uh, I'm sorry. In their, in their mind, the world consisted of two groups. The people of God and everyone else. And that's their, that was their paradigm. So if you're not a part of the people of God, you're just everybody else. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? This, this gets a little close. And the word that, that we see this represented most often in Scripture is when you see the distinction between Jew and what? Gentile. The word Gentile actually just is a, it's a general term. It just means the nations. It's an oversimplification, a categorization of saying that these are, this is everybody that's not a part of us. It is sort of the us and them, the original anyway. So the most common job description for the prophet is not actually, in this context, it's not actually to typically go to the nations. The prophet is tasked with going to the covenant people and reminding them of the covenant and saying, be faithful to the Lord, your God. Conform to his ways. And so there's, there's this sort of problem that takes place when he, when he is tasked, and it is outrageous and extreme to think that God is going to send Jonah to Assyria. So this, this, radical, this radical ask that takes place. So to present that Jonah would go there is a kind of identity crisis, if you will, for what Jonah understands to be his role in obeying Yahweh. So put simply, Nineveh would represent the opposite of Israel in the mind of the ancient Jew, and really to everyone. It was one of the largest cities and one of the worst enemies of the Jewish people. Part of the Assyrian Empire, this place was the hometown of the up-and-coming bad boys of the ancient world. Now, you might be wondering why that matters. Uh, after all, who cares if Assyria is so bad, right? They're not around anymore. Uh, maybe Israel and Judah need to stop worrying about their neighbors and just start thinking about themselves. But the problem is, is that Israel, the nation of Israel, is a place where it's like all of the best stuff about the ancient world hangs out right there. Like that's, that's where you find it all. Like the best food, the best farming, the best stuff, the weather, everything is right there. So whenever there is a top dog, a new top dog in town, and from a military, militaristic perspective, that's what Assyria became, there's probably going to be two things that happen. They're going to beat everybody up, and then they're going to let, make sure they know who's in charge by doing that, and they're going to take all their stuff. They're going to enslave everybody, and they're going to take all their things from themselves and say, this is now our land. We rule this. And these guys, they're no joke, because in, in a few hundred years after Jonah is around, that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to march in to the northern kingdom and they're going to wipe them out. They're going to enslave them. They're going to conquer them. And so when you think about this, when you hear about how much Jonah doesn't want to go to them, it's, like, it's rooted in real stuff. 
It's not like he's just a jerk. He, that we could think that, but he, this is rooted in real serious stuff. The same way that when you think about those individuals, it's rooted in real stuff often. It's not like you're just making it up, like you don't just want to like them, you don't just want to care for them, but like Jonah, this is actually, this is founded on something. And so, in addition to that, it seems like just a waste of time. Why would we, when we have perfectly good Jews that need to repent, why would I go anywhere but there? So he runs in the opposite direction. Now, we're all familiar with the three nights that Jonah spent in the Sea Life Motel. However, the story's culmination does not come at that moment. It comes in our passage this morning. The passage opens in a setting that Jonah is hopeful he won't see, but it comes nevertheless. He has just walked into Nineveh, and he's preached. He tells them to repent, and guess what happens? They respond. They repent. What else could you ask for? But it's in the midst of this context that we see in our passage. So if you do have your Bible, please open it, and let's pick up in Jonah chapter 3, starting at verse 10. When God saw what they did, meaning those in Nineveh, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat in the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he, until he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it may be a shade for his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it, would, that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. It goes without saying 
that our passage is a bit revealing in regard to our problem of being stuck. When God's good work pushes past our care for others, we can easily misdiagnose the problem, like Jonah. He sees God relent. What does he say? This is injustice. He blows right past him where he's stuck, and he's not thinking something's wrong with him. He's thinking what? Something's wrong with God. In fact, if we're anything like Jodah, we can actually start to see that there's nothing wrong with us, just like him, and that we're actually not stuck, which is wrong, and that the gospel is really too liberal. The gospel being too liberal. This is where our mind goes. Are we re- should we really extend that kind of care? Is it, 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 where's the line here for how much we extend love and, and, and latitude to that person? I mean, we got, there's got to be a line, right? We need to make sure that justice is not abandoned here. We get this idea when we think like this that somehow justice is not going to be served when grace is applied as it is in this account. I wonder if this comes from a sense of being like only aware of the details and never really moving beyond that awareness when we think about the gospel or we think about how God is. Put another way, maybe our problem with being stuck is that we, make, uh, we mistake being aware of sinners around us, right? And assuming we care for them because that's what you're supposed to do. Or maybe... Maybe it's we assume that being aware of God's love and kindness means that we are kind and loving and merciful. Like we share those attributes because we simply know they're good. You see what I'm saying? Like thinking that we're aware of them translates into the fact that we actually share them. We think that equates to us seeing how these things, this mercy and this grace directs all of our life and how we interact with the world in need. But does it? These moments, right? These moments when you see these guys on the beach, when you picture that individual or that injustice you've experienced, it kind of shows whether that's the case or not. However, I think we need to hear and see that God, what God is doing in this passage, we can see that these assumptions are probably why we are stuck. It is the limitation of our awareness of sinners our awareness of God's mercy, and our awareness of the gospel that's le- that when it's left alone, when it's only awareness, causes us to be small-minded in our perception of what the, go- the gospel actually is able to do. We minimize it. We shrink it. It's a very small thing when we're only aware but when you when, let's look at look at how Jonah reacts to God's character here. God essentially displays His amazing grace, and Jonah's reaction is is not to be amazed, uh, but to actually be devastated. He goes so far as to even recall that he was right for running away from. I mean, this is crazy to me. I mean, after all of this scene, I mean, when you when you when you think about it, like he's in the gut of a fish. Not a pleasant scenario, I'm sure, but he's there, and he goes through all that, and he just must have like a short-term memory issue because he's sitting here going, it was a good idea if you're thinking like I am. It, just is making, it makes no sense. He says it, it, was, it was good and right for him to run away because he knew that his character would be merciful. He's clearly stuck. 
And God's good and amazing act of mercy, it blew right past him. It left him in the dust. Now, when I say he's stuck, I think this particular passage helps us to see just how messed up this is, right? Uh, you see, that this explanation Jonah gives is a close-to-home recollection of God's uh, interaction with Jonah's people. That passage where he talks about, I knew you were going to be this way, does anybody know where that comes from? There's this really weird scene when the people of Israel come out of Egypt and they've experienced all this amazing power that God's displayed and they come up to the mountain and Moses is like, everybody's freaked out. So Moses is like, I'm going to go talk to God up at the, on the mountain. And he's up there and they get impatient. So what do they do? God's left us here to die. He doesn't care about us. I know all that stuff happened. He doesn't care. Hey, you know what we should do? Let's, let's build an idol. That sounds like a good idea. Is everybody in with that? And they build an idol and, and there's all this stuff, and as Moses is coming down, he realizes, like, oh my gosh, this is insane. But what does Moses do? He goes back, and he appeals to Yahweh. He appeals to him, and it says he relents. And then he, after Moses asks him to back away from his wrath, then he learns, and as God himself, as he asks to see him, describes his attributes, he says, all of these things, all of these things that Jonah knows, he knows firsthand because it is absolutely ingrained in who they are as a people, spared by a loving, kind, and merciful, and a committed, a committed God. This, this term of uh, loving kindness or this covenant faithfulness idea that you might have heard in the term hesed, like this idea of like this rooted, I am not going to let go of you. I am committed to you. No matter what you do, no matter how bad you go, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is what he's evoking. He says, I know you're like that. And it bothers me. It bothers me that you would... Show yourself to be that way to anybody but us. This is what's going on. This is what being stuck looks like. We are aware of these things, but fail to make the heart connection beyond our own benefit. We look at the mercy of God, selfishly hog it for ourselves, and then Anybody appealing for it, we demand justice for those. When we're only aware, we see wickedness, and we fail to see the need for others to have rescue. When we're only aware, we just see God's mercy on the page of Scripture, but fail to see its potential in the world around us. When we're only aware, we just see a gospel message, we hear it and preach it and say it, we, we just are aware of it, and then we fail to think twice of anything beyond our own rescue. When we're only aware, we get stuck, and the gospel blows right past us. So we need to move from awareness to hope. Now, it's important for us to recognize that Jonah is not wrong to recognize the state of the people of Nineveh. I'm not, I'm not saying that. 
He is aware of the situation, and no doubt their state probably informs and even justifies how he feels towards them. So I don't want to communicate that it's a bad thing to see sin in others. It's not. We live in a world that doesn't like this, but we need to remember that seeing sin and recognizing it is part, it is a critical part of seeing it actually corrected. You need to know that. We can jump, uh, we often want to jump on the bandwagon of the don't judge unless you be judged, right? We've all heard it, said it, I'm sure. But, or, or even this idea of uh, uh, pull the log before you address the speck, right? But the truth is that we don't often understand what this means. We're not, what we're not done, it's, we're not instructed to ignore the speck in our neighbor's eye, but we're meant to see it and be reminded by our own more pressing issues that need to be addressed first. And this is Jonah's problem. He is aware of the issues in Nineveh, but he doesn't seem, it doesn't seem to like stimulate any kind of reflective thought or understanding of his own state. Seeing the world around us and recognizing their sinners around us is good. The problem is, is that we should, we should not just remain stuck there, just being aware. Like Jonah, we can too easily become content with just being aware of sinners and have no interest in seeing them encounter the transforming work of the gospel in Christ. This reality of seeing everybody and seeing their sin and not being moved to know and want the transforming power of God in the world that's full of sin around us is as bad than their actual state. That's what it is when you're stuck. Instead, we must recall that there's no, that, or I'm sorry, that there is hope for what Christ has done on the cross. There is hope. There is hope in his defeat of death who, for those who don't yet believe it. Do you think about this? There was a time, if you believe and you hope in that, there is a time you didn't. There is hope for us. There is hope for us to be merely uh, unaffected by this hope and to remain simply stuck. Because when you are stuck in this idea, when you fail to see the potential of what God can do in redeeming and transforming all of the sinners and the sinfulness that you see in the world around you, there is only one place for you to go and look. To Christ. You need to look to Christ. We need to go and look to Christ who has paid not just for some sins, but for every sin. And we need to know that those around us who we fail to love can be covered by the same blood that you and I still, even now, need so badly. Look to him. Look to Jesus to move from awareness to hope. Then we need to move from awareness to ownership. 
we need, uh, uh, we must also be more aware, more than aware of the mercy of God towards others. Now, I, I'm not just talking about having a working familiarity with the chapter uh, on God's attributes in any kind of systematics textbook. Uh, when you read those things, it's very easy to get just like, God is like this, God is like this, God is like this. Okay, thank you, take the test, you're good. Right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about reflecting on how he demonstrates his mercy through all history and then in your life. When you think about how the scripture is set up, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. Because the people of Israel, as they look at the scriptures, they get to look back and they get to see over and over and over again how God's mercy is constantly interceding through all of their stupidity. And likewise, I know if you are anything like me, I know you get to look back on your life, and if you're like me, you get to start like an hour or two ago and just start inching your way back, and you get to see over and over and over again how God has constantly pushed himself into your life, into my life, and has dumped mercy all over all of it. We need to see this. We need to reflect on his demonstrated mercy in history and in our life how you have seen it, how you have experienced it. Let's think about this scene here. Jonah was as good as dead in that fish days ago, maybe weeks ago before this moment. And still, his sort of, uh, his, his, his experience doesn't get drawn up to cause him to, 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 to connect his cry out to the Lord in the gut of a fish. He doesn't connect that. However long ago it was, he doesn't make that connection to what he's doing here. We can, we can hear him, though, in his cry, in the belly of the fish, start to make the connection. Like when you read his prayer to the Lord, he's like realizing, I'm doomed, and really if it's not for you, I'm hosed. It's not going to go well. He starts to go there, right? You can almost see it start to come along. But as soon as he gets to Nineveh, it's very clear he doesn't make that connection. He's aware of God's character historically as a prophet and personally as fish bait. However, this does not move him fully from awareness to owning God's mercy for himself. And as we see in verse 1 of chapter 4, Jonah doesn't like that God shows mercy to the people of Nineveh. And the text actually tells us he gets angry. What we need to pay attention to here, though, is that Jonah has his finger on something very right and yet completely wrong in his thinking when he says, this is why I made haste to leave to Tarshish, right? Because I knew you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that's that chesed word, and relenting from disaster. He's right on with his understanding and familiarity of who God is and what he will do for these people. But he, he so, so like if Mark's giving him the theology test, he gets the A, right, Mark? Because he knows what God's like. But he fails the overall because he doesn't 
make the connection to his own heart. From understanding this thing to be good and true of God to him jumping in and owning it for himself and seeing it in his own life. In his uh, really great marriage book, Paul Tripp warns spouses of this very problem. He says, we don't want what God wants. We want what we want. Right? Moving from awareness to ownership is about the heart abandoning what it wants, whether it's justice or, or whatever, and adopting what God wants and knowing. Sometimes with a mustard seed of faith, knowing it's better. This is Jonah's problem, and it's too often our problem. We need to understand that knowing who the sinner is and what God will do for them is really only part of the issue. It's just the beginning. We have to ask ourselves, as we think of the world around us, do we share God's vision for the lost, for those who are dying? Do we share his love for those who don't yet know his mercy? And I do mean they don't yet know. Because the promise of the gospel, the command of the gospel, the go out and tell people and make disciples command of the gospel is a promise and a guarantee that there are people out there that don't yet know and don't yet believe. He will bring his people to himself. And this is how we have to understand, do we share God's love for those people? Do we own it? Or does our prejudice and preference or convenience, that's me, is it totally content with keeping them where they are? This is what happens when we forget what it is to be a sinner. We don't pay attention to how Christ has looked at us. We don't pay attention on how he still looks at us. When we don't recall what it's like to be a sinner, when we don't recall what it's like to realize for the first time that we need to be rescued, this is what happens. You get stuck. This is a sure sign when you are in this position, when you find yourself here, this is a sure sign that somewhere down the line, we became so convinced that we are actually cut out for this Jesus following thing. That we're a good fit. It's a good match. His ideas, my ideas, I mean, they're just like, great. It's like finding the right job on LinkedIn. And we lose touch with our actual need for Christ. That's not an attitude of faith, an ongoing, growing, and constant faith. That is arrogance. That is the law. We were not born into this. It was by grace, by the grace of God that we believed. And we can forget. We can forget that verse in Ephesians chapter 2 that tells us that. I'm going to read it. I'm just going to go for it. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 and 8, 1 through 8. And you, speaking to the Ephesian church, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work of the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, you have been saved. You've been rescued and raised up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. In Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And folks, if you don't have this one bolted in your heart and your mind, do it now. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It's not just in the scripture so that we can defend our doctrine. It's there so we can be reminded that we have no claim to the family of God except by Christ. It's only because of his doing, and that's it. There's not really a lot of room for prejudice in that. So how can we, who claim to have this mercy, how can we not share it ourselves? How can we who have been saved from destruction like Jonah be void of this mercy towards others? It makes no sense. There is no other group in the entire span of history like us. If you think about this, it is compelling. There is no other group through all of history whom Christ has purchased and who are more equipped and given more reason and have more opportunity to reflect the mercy of God than us. Yet many of us are in the corner sulking with Jonah because justice does, hasn't been served. Why not seek more? Why not run with, with the Lord? Why not run with him and go for what he's after? Instead of waiting for their failure outside like Jonah sitting on the bleachers that we've built to wait and watch the fireworks happen as they are destroyed, why, instead of waiting for the people around us to fail, why not consider what it is to own the mercy of God for ourselves? Having firsthand experience of his power and grace, we are more than equipped to not be stuck and to be carried along and watch him do it again and again, and again, and again, all over the place. Imagine him going and doing the work he's done in your life, and watching him do it in the best places and the worst places that you can think of, in the least expected places and the most obvious places we can think of, with the people that you think are ready, that you have this like feeling that they're ready for the gospel, and even those who you know are completely repulsed by it. 
What would it be to be with him and to watch him do this in all of those places and everything in between? Why not own it as his people who know he is capable of doing just this? Not just being aware of what God is like, but being carried up by him and owning it for ourselves and expecting it to see, to see it everywhere. Why not? Rather than building a booth and waiting for it all to just sort of fall apart. To remain, to do otherwise, is to remain self-centered. It's to forget the mercy that we ourselves receive every day. And it is what Bonhoeffer calls very clearly cheap grace. It is living in the lie that the gospel only really needed to reach you. <laughs> and that was just perfectly fine. See, we may not have been camping in a fish, but Ephesians and other verses are there to remind us of what God has done. When we forget this miracle, we face the same foolishness Paul preaches against to the Galatian church. We are not special grace getters. We are not special. We are grace getters. We receive what we don't deserve. And as grace getters, we need to understand that there is zero... Let's get this one really settled in our minds, in our hearts. There is zero room anywhere within the body of Christ, within the people of God, zero room for prejudice and preference. It doesn't belong there. There's no room for it in the blood of Christ. And when encountering the world, we must not lose ourselves to pride and arrogance. It is simply insufficient to be aware of their of their state and their sin, and to know what's available to them, we must also want it for them, expect it for them. We simply must own the mercy for, of God for ourselves. Next, we need to move from awareness to obsession. In the last verses of our passage, we find a critical exchange between Jonah and the Lord. Jonah is... Suffering from a very familiar case, we all know, of the feeling sorry for yourself condition. You're aware of this? I get it every week. After all, he didn't get to see justice poured out on the city of Nineveh. That's really what he was hoping for. And now he has no shade. And when you're from Phoenix, that, that means something. There's something to that. Uh, <laughs> Now, the response of the Lord ends the book abruptly, but we must be careful to not miss the message he has in the last lines. So in verse 10, he says, The Lord said to Jonah, You, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? where there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many cattle. The cattle part always throws me off, by the way. So don't, if you can just put that one in the corner and say, we'll ask later, not today. 
Uh, So while this may seem like an odd way to end the account, we can see some pretty important stuff here. First, we see the Lord remind Jonah of his greater care, his superior greater care for the people of Nineveh. That's important. And he knows Jonah doesn't care for them he doesn't sh- because he doesn't share the, the Lord's heart of mercy. However, he does show that Jonah's passion for his own comfort is massively, massively outmatched by the Lord's passion for 120,000 souls. Think about this. This is an amazing, like, I'm I'm amazed that God does this. Like, I I just, when I feel the love of the Lord the most is when he uses these, like, uh, I call them dumb, but, like, because that's how I perceive myself, is these simple little ways of, like, communicating massive truths. Like, a plant that he causes to shade him, and then he destroys it and says, why do you care about that so much? Because I need help like that. We need these like object lessons to sort of be reminded, right? And, and Jonah's just not getting it, and so I'm sure many of us can relate to that. Uh, but but he, doesn't, he doesn't seem to understand that the very accusation of Jonah not understanding that he had nothing to do with that plant coming into being and what it did or it's going away and the link to the people in the city is an amazing testament because guess what? When God looks at the lost, he says, I made them. You you care so much about something you didn't make, but I actually care because I made them. I know each one of them. I hear all the stuff in their heart. I know how wicked they are. I know how much they need me. I know all of those things, but you don't. But I... And, and I do, and it's that simple. You should understand that I care this way. It's meant to evoke the idea back in Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 2 and 3, or 2 really, where Adam, which is the same term used here for people, are created or made by God himself evoking this idea of, you know, Jonah, that I am responsible for their life. I made them. This is, this has got to do something in us. When you level the field and you just realize that the only thing, you know, everybody, no matter their situation or their prestige or any of those things, are completely neutralized. Like all the things that make us different, right? All the things that we use and stimulate for prejudice and all these things, all those things that we set up and say, them and us, they're different. We don't, you know, whatever. All of that gets neutralized by six feet of dirt. All of it. At the end of the day, it all goes away when you realize that. And when we start to understand that the only reason we stand any differently is because of him, there is something that changes from being aware to being absolutely obsessed with seeing that miracle happen in every possible opportunity that it could. We need to move from being aware of those things to being obsessive, obsessed 
with every interaction, with every conversation, with every transaction, with every paper that changes hands at the office, with every phone call to the school, being something that is orienting to see people receive and hear, and Lord God, please respond to the gospel. That is moving from being aware to obsessed. Obsession knows the gospel is for the world in the same way that it knows and recognizes that it's for us. I think we get stuck uh, when we're like Jonah and we forget that this amazing thing that Jonah very easily, depending on a couple of details, really, could have been on the inside of the wall. Right? I mean, it's just a few details that, that get him on the outside. But we just don't think like this. This isn't really the way that we process things. And so we need to be remembered, we need to remember that as we find ourselves stuck and we're sort of realizing and we're uncovering all of these things that keep us from really leaning into God's plan and mercy for the world, that we need to look to Jesus. It's that simple. I told you, I told you that in February it was this big milestone for me, right? It marked that moment when I realized that I was no different. I wasn't more significant or any better off than the people that I was praying wrath down on. In fact, in that time of prayer, I had this, uh, this, this, you know, sometimes the spirit, like, it's very subtle, and you're like, I don't know if that, you know, are you doing something, Lord? And then sometimes it's like a hammer just clobbered you right behind the ear, and it's very apparent, and that's what happened. Uh, just this memory of the images of blood-soaked robes in Revelation. It's, it's Christ's blood. We forget we can forget that just like those men I was praying for wrath to fall on, that might have already been dealt with. The people that we harbor this strong desire of justice for, do we have a paradigm that understands that could have already been dealt with in the cross of Christ? Because we can know justice will prevail. The Lord will be just. He will. But that justice will fall in one of two ways. It will either come when the Lord returns and he lays out and he makes sure everybody understands that all sin will be dealt with or it has been fantastically dealt with completely and fully and eternally in the cross of Christ. That's the gospel. The gospel says there is nobody out there too far. There's nobody too far. If you just, if, just a quick experiment. If you just think about the obsession of our Lord to endure the suffering to get to the cross, to endure the cross, to endure the unbelief, to endure the accusations, all of that, to get to the cross, to purchase our salvation, to be glorified, right? 
and then for the persistence and the obsession of the Lord to continue in the moving of the Spirit for 2,000 years, transforming life over here, over there, through multiple cultures across all sorts of places in many unimaginable circumstances, all to get to you so you could hear the gospel. That's the obsession. That is owning the love and the mercy of God, is knowing and understanding that he has been hunting us down like a dog, and he will not fail, and there are many more beyond us that he desires to bring into the kingdom. Because he's purchased them. They're his. Not better, not worse than us. Just like us. Brothers and sisters, this is how you get unstuck. This is how we get unstuck. We rest in Jesus knowing that he has paid for every sin. He has paid for our sin and there are many more he wishes to rescue. And he will. Is the gospel going to blow past us? Are we going to be stuck? Or do we want to be like little kids that are just amazed? And let's say, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Right? Pray with me. Lord, you're, you're good. Uh, I pray. I pray for this community. I pray for this church, Lord. I pray, Lord, as a, as a people united uh, in, within sovereign grace, Lord, that we would not be stuck. So, Lord, I pray by your mercy and your power that you would just uh, reveal where we need to repent. And, Lord, I pray that we would lean heavily into your grace, that we would remind ourselves we are grace getters and that we would just be stirred stirred up in thankfulness and gratefulness and out from that would we would own your love and your passion and your obsession and your mercy for the world god i pray that you would do this in us and pray you would do it here in aurora we ask that your hand would be clearly on this place lord as you call individuals and groups and families and couples and pastors and whatever it is that you have in mind for this place, Lord, I pray that they would be profoundly moved at your might and your transforming power and they would be renewed in their faith. Lord, I pray they would go out from here, Lord, and they would take your power with them and they would not be left behind, Lord, but that they would run with you. They would run with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.